Thanks very much, Pastor Joe, and thank you to Kevin and the team. And good morning, friends. How are you? Good. It's good to see you on this family day. Good to be here among family. Welcome to you if you are new here with us today or if you're joining us online today. We're so, so glad that you're here. And I wonder this morning if any of you pay very much attention to the targeted ads that you get on Facebook. Anybody? Well, I do. Um, I know that my instinct should probably be to be a little bit creeped out by this, but I just find it so fascinating and honestly sometimes a little offensive how accurate they are a lot of the time. Let me show you what I mean. Here are just a few of the targeted ads that have popped up on my timeline this week. Number one, croc slippers. I mean, this just makes sense. Look at my shoes. Of course this makes sense for me. Number two, the Udi. And if you don't know what that is, it's like a giant wearable blanket. And specifically, I keep getting ads for the Barbie-themed one and for the one with pictures of tiny smiling toasts on them. And again, this is all very on-brand for me. I actually got one of these for Christmas from my sister-in-law, and I love it as much as the Facebook algorithm knew that I would. And then number three, this is maybe my favorite, it makes me laugh every time. So welcome, Matt, that you put outside your house, and it says, live, laugh, leave by nine. Some of you think I'm maybe a little too nice to really mean this last one, but you should ask our Thursday night youth leaders who try to stick around and visit after youth group ends. I'm much nicer before nine o'clock. I'm wondering if maybe we see a theme here. Individually, these all just kind of make sense for me, but together they tell the story of a person who really just wants to sit at home in their house all day with slippers and blankets and a book and not have to talk to a single other human person unless for some reason they really want to and definitely not after nine o'clock at night. And this is not incorrect. This is fairly true of me as a person. Where are all of my introverted friends who would also view this as their ideal day off? Yes, I see you, brothers and sisters. Yes and amen. But I also know that for some of you, those outgoing extroverts among us, this sounds like some kind of dystopian nightmare, and you can't think of anything more boring than sitting by yourself all day, having nothing to do. Where are you guys at? Mm-hmm, yep, bet you're morning people too, weirdos. Kidding, brothers and sisters, created in the image of an infinite and unfathomable God. But actually, I agree with both groups of you. I love nothing more than to sit in my quiet little colorful house with a good book and a cup of tea and no intentions of going anywhere or seeing anybody. Or at least I love it for a morning or a day, or maybe if I'm really tired, then two days but it isn't actually very long for me before I am acutely aware that this state of being, which comes so naturally, isn't really very good for me, whether I want it or not, whether I feel comfortable with it or not, whether I'm used to it or not, I need meaningful times of fellowship within the body of Christ, outside of the confines of my house and the person who lives inside of it with me. We've been talking for the past few weeks about what it looks like to build a resilient faith that will sustain you through moments of calm as well as moments of crisis. And I'm here today to tell you that this is something that we just cannot do alone. And it's something that God never intended for us to try to do alone. Introverts, stick with me. I promise this is going to be okay. I want to read for you this morning Psalm 133. And verse 1 says... 
How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. I have just a hypothetical for you. I'm wondering if anyone here maybe possibly has ever spent some time in the company of the people of God and then gone home with some adjectives other than good and pleasant to describe that experience. You don't have to out yourself. Don't raise your hands or anything. Maybe just make some eye contact and I will know that you know what I mean. Good and pleasant is what we want it to be. Good and pleasant is what it often is. But we also recognize that it's a goal that we don't always meet. Anytime you get a group of people together, let alone a group of 100 or 200 or 300 or 400 or 700, like we sometimes have at Rivercross, things are going to get a little bit complicated and they're going to get a little bit messy. And the task of becoming a united people, a people that truly represents that God, what God is like, a family that demonstrates the kind of kingdom that he is building, this task does not always feel good or pleasant. I listened to a lecture on YouTube the other day by the late Gordon Fee, and there was a quote of his that made me laugh right out loud. He said, you can't find out whether a person is a true Christian or not until they rub elbows with another Christian. That's when you find out if the work of the Holy Spirit is really taking place. Now, doesn't that just feel true and hurtful a little bit, maybe? The real test comes in how we treat each other when we think that the other person is wrong, when we disagree with each other, when we have to work together, or maybe when we just annoy each other. Again, you don't have to confess to any of this, just I'll know. And maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you've been burned by the people of God before. Maybe you've been disappointed and let down. Maybe you've felt forgotten and invisible. Maybe it just feels safer to pursue Jesus on your own, to come to a service on Sunday, to watch a service online, to visit on special occasions, but then go back home and put on your metaphorical slippers and crawl into your metaphorical hoodie and return to what feels comfortable. I get this. But if we'll hear the psalmist out today, God has more for us than this. Let's keep reading. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now, I know that immediately this image of Aaron's oily beard maybe doesn't sound all that appealing. And I apologize to those of you who have bearded Aaron's in your life for putting this image of church in your brain for you to think about forever. But the symbols in this psalm are telling us something really beautiful. The psalmist is saying that the anointing of God, the blessing of God, the presence of God, the holiness of God, all of these things are embodied by the people of God when we live together in unity with one another. Not just by individual Christians individually seeking God, but by all of God's people seeking him together. This actually is what Jesus prayed for us to be. He prays it in John chapter 17 when he's preparing his disciples for the events that are going to happen after his death. 
He prays for them, but not just for them. He prays for us too. John 17, verses 20 to 23 say, My prayer is not for them, as in the disciples, alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He prays, Father, would you make them like us? Would they be one like you and I are one? Would you remake them again in our image so that the whole world will know what is true? God offers us this little foretaste of eternity in one another. We experience more of the life-giving presence of God. We bear the image of God more faithfully to the world around us when we live together in unity. We need each other. And not just the people that we like, not just the people that think the same way that we do, not just the people who share our life experience, but all of us. Jesus in us and God in Jesus brought to complete unity. And even though this process is messy, even though unity isn't something we always want to really work for, when we know that we could get it for free by just going home and getting away from all of the people who make things so messy, or by finding a space where everyone agrees with us all of the time. But it won't be very long until we discover that that state of being, which maybe comes more naturally, isn't actually very good for us. And this morning, I'm going to give you just three reasons why. Reason number one, when I am alone, I begin to believe that I am always wrong. I've been coming back a lot lately to the story of a woman in Mark chapter 5 who lived without community for 12 years. Many of you will have heard her story before. We aren't told her name, which is kind of fitting because in the eyes of the world around her, she was just nobody. She was worse than nobody, actually. She had suffered for 12 years with a bleeding condition that made her unclean. She wasn't just ill. She was an outcast. She could never marry, she could never have children, which meant that in her place and time, she had no hope for restoration or a future. And for 12 years, she lived in disgrace, ostracized and alone. Her bleeding not only made her unclean, but anyone who touched her or who came into contact with her was made unclean as well. But she had heard about Jesus, and she thought, if I can just touch his robe, then I will be healed. And so she goes to where she is, or to where he is. And she knows that she could be severely punished for her presence in the crowd of people that had come to see Jesus. So she comes crawling, shame-faced, and catches on to the hem of his robe. And immediately, her bleeding stops, and she feels in her body that she has been freed from her suffering, and she quickly disappears back into the crowd before she can be found out. But Jesus knows what has happened too. And among the crowds of people pushing up against him, he notices the touch of that woman. And he stops everything to ask, who touched my robe? 
His disciples say, what do you mean? Look at this crowd pressing up against you. How can you ask who touched you? Everybody touched you. But Jesus insists until the woman, trembling and afraid, came forward and confessed what she had done. And maybe she expected punishment. What she had done had broken the law. Maybe she expected to be dismissed or ignored, because who was she to stop Jesus when he was on his way to do something really important? But Jesus calls her daughter. Daughter, he says in verse 34. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Daughter, I'm so glad that you came. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't take me 12 years of suffering or solitude to forget that Jesus calls me daughter. I can get that done much more efficiently than that. In youth group, we've been working through a series on identity and discovering together what it means for who we are to be all wrapped up in who Jesus is. And as part of our small group time two weeks ago, we asked the question, what does Jesus see when he looks at you? And I happened to be bringing snack to the grade six small group at just the right time to catch the answer that my 11-year-old friend Megan gave. And it was so beautiful that I asked her to say it again for me last week. And I took this video at our pancake supper, so you'll have to ignore the sounds of way too much fun happening in the background behind her. But listen to what Megan has to say about who she is. Who am I? I'm a child of God, created in the image of God. I have the power of the Lord of the universe in me. I can do all things through his power. I have understanding, goodness, and knowledge. That's it. Just that. I am a child of God, created in the image of God. I have the power of the Lord of the universe in me as he works through my weakness to make his glory known. I have goodness, power, and knowledge because Jesus gives those things to me freely. He has taken away my shame and he's given me a new name and a new identity. And about every Tuesday evening or so, I need an 11-year-old to remind me who I am. So thank you, Megan, for reminding me this week. We need each other because we forget who Jesus says that we are. And we begin to believe that we are always wrong. And then reason number two, and this one's even worse than reason number one, When I am on my own, I begin to believe that I am always right. Anybody else do this? Just me? Oh, good. Some of you are truth tellers. (laughs) Just a few chapters after we meet the woman who Jesus called daughter in the book of Mark, we read another story that I find way too relatable. James and John come up to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, and they've got this really great idea. Teacher, they said, We want you to do us a favor. When you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. Since we're like your special best friends, wouldn't it just make sense for us to be seated right beside you? It's not even that we think we're so important. We just want to be beside you. Like We agree that we want you in the middle on your glorious throne. It's just that obviously we're so much better than these other 10, so we should be there on your right and your left. And then the other 10 disciples are outraged by this, not because they think that James and John have obviously missed the point, but because they think that they should be seated at the right and left hands of Jesus. And how dare James and John try and take their place? 
That's all kind of comical, right? I mean, they've seen how Jesus interacts with people. They've watched him bring people from the margins into the center. They've heard him teach about this upside-down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. They've seen the way that he humbles himself and raises up the humble. And they're still missing the point. I mean, all we've done is read about it, and we get it, right? In fact, they shouldn't get seats of honor at all. If anyone's going to be sitting at the right and left hand of Jesus, it should be us who figured it out all on our own. Wait a minute. (laughs) And this is a little silly, but it really does happen so easily. We get busy, and we withdraw from each other, and then we begin to think, how come nobody is working as hard as I am working? Or why am I the only one who shows up on time? Or why am I the only one who prays the right way or interprets the Bible correctly or has the right political view? How come I'm the only one who really understands what's true? And the longer we let this fester, the more we allow ourselves to try to remake Jesus in our image instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to remake us into the image of Jesus. But God has given us this beautiful gift a diverse family. We need the voices of people from different ages and genders and ethnicities and cultures speaking with different voices and seeing through different eyes so that we are able to see and understand in new ways the fullness of God and God's word. And we're able to see things that we can't see if we only ever surround ourselves with people who look and think and act exactly the way that we do. We'll miss the fullness of who God is if we're not willing to take on the messiness of community. Charles Spurgeon once spoke of the people of God as an array of jewels in the crown of Jesus. It is worthy of remark, he said, that jewels are of many kinds. Perhaps there is not a single ray in the spectrum which is not represented among them, from the purest white of the diamond, the red of the ruby, the bright green of the emerald, to the blue of the sapphire. So it is with God's people. They are not all alike, and they never will be. All attempts at uniformity must fail, and it is very proper that they should. We need not wish to be one in the sense of uniformity, but only in the sense of unity. Not all one jewel, but many set in a crown. It matters little whether we shine with the sapphire's blue, or the emerald's green, or the ruby's red, or the diamond's white as long as we are the Lord's on the day when he takes up his jewels. I just love that. We need people to call us out and rein us in when we start imagining that we are the crown jewel in Jesus' crown. We need people to rein us in when we start believing that we're the only ones who have ever gotten it all right, when we start seating ourselves at the right and the left hand of Jesus. We need each other because we forget who Jesus is and we start to believe that we are always right. And then finally, reason number three, when I am on my own, I start to believe that this is all that there is. When I was earning my master's degree in Ontario, part of the requirements of one of my classes was to translate the book of Ecclesiastes from Hebrew to English. And I know some of you are thinking that sounds terrible, but I did it on purpose and I was so excited about it. 
but I would spend a long time sometimes sort of puzzling out different verb and noun forms and considering context and interpretation and history of use. And after all of that time, I would come out with something like, what do people get for all their hard work at which they toil under the sun? Or this one is my favorite, everything is wearisome beyond description. You know, just really classic greeting card kind of stuff. And if you've ever read through Ecclesiastes, then you'll be familiar with this. It's the narrative of someone who believes that God is God, but who also only knows the world that he can see. He's stuck under the earth's sun, trying to figure out what God's plan could be in a world that is random and unfair. It's a tough read, but it's a really good one because it gives voice to what we so often feel in our faith. Sometimes, Everything really is wearisome beyond description. Sometimes we can't imagine a future beyond what is happening right in front of us in the here and the now. Sometimes it's just too hard. And when it's too hard, we need each other to remind each other that this world is not all that there is. When I need to lift my eyes and remember that God is building another kingdom, my favorite image comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was a prophet called by God to bring a message from God to the kingdom of Judah. And as Isaiah received this message, he was given a glimpse of the very throne room of God. And he says, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him there are seraphim, which are angels, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah is just so overcome that he falls to his face, and we're left with just this picture of this enormous robe that fills the whole temple. And I remember that woman who reached her hand out through the crowd of people to catch hold of Jesus' robe and receive healing and a name and life more abundant than she could have imagined. And in Isaiah, we're given this picture of a robe that is so big that there's room enough for all of us to reach out and to hold onto it together. There is life enough for all of us. There is healing enough for all of us. There is name enough for all of us, as he calls us, daughter and son, daughter and son. When I begin to imagine that this world is all that there is, I need to remember that Jesus is building a kingdom where we will finally be what Jesus has been praying for us to be since before we were born, perfectly united. Jesus in us and God in Jesus brought to complete unity the way that creation was always meant to be, healed and whole in the very presence of God. And in his goodness, he gives us a taste of this right now in each other. How good and how pleasant it is when we are all hanging on to his robe together. And I need you to remind me of that because I'll forget. In a minute, we're gonna to sing together again this morning. And as we prepare to do that, I want to invite all of you, whether you think you are a singer or not, to sing out really loud this morning. Not just because you need to remember what is true, 
but because the people sitting in front of you and beside you and behind you need to be reminded too. Let's remind each other today who Jesus says we are. Let's remind each other who Jesus is. And let's remind each other about the kingdom that he is building. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, today we say thank you for the gift of one another. Thank you that you haven't left us alone to follow you, but you've given us this diverse family of people, each one uniquely created in your image, each one uniquely created to reveal to us something about yourself. God, we just pray that as we go through life, as we leave this place, as we go through our week, that you would knit us together and bind us together into a family that lives together in unity. Would you help us to see in each other the reminders of who Jesus says that we are, of who Jesus is, and of the kingdom that he is building. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.